Thanks for listening to this week's Hope at Crossroads. We are glad you're taking the time to listen. As you tune in today, if you need encouragement or prayer, please reach out to us by texting 864-288-1626. Or you can connect with us through our website, hopeatcrossroads.org. Spread the word to your friends and let them know they can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Videos of our messages are also online at hope at crossroads.org. And now, here's this week's message. Amen. Thank you, Hannah. If you have your Bibles, if you open up to Genesis, Genesis chapter 27. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we are going through the book of Genesis. And I know we could have gone through it over a series of 10 years, which would probably not even do it due diligence. But we're kind of going over it over a few months And uh, last week, Heath kind of caught us up in a little bit of the story, and we're going to pick up from there this morning. While you're turning there, uh, let me just remind you of a couple of things. We had a uh, God is at work in our church, and I want to say commend you as a church, uh, because if if what you see on this platform this morning before I got here is a product of what our church is doing, then praise the Lord. The future of Crossroads is in good hands, and... uh, I got to share with the students Wednesday night when they dropped by Lynette and I at our house Wednesday night and they got to spend some time with them. Uh, I reminded them they are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. If we don't invest in them today, there will be no tomorrow. And I'm glad to be a a part of a church family who understands that, uh, that every age group uh, from the oldest to the youngest is important. We need each other. We're better together and we need each other. So I'm grateful for that. We also had a great time with our, speaking of kids, our weekday this week with uh, dads and dudes and donuts, and I won't tell you how many of the donuts I had, but that's another uh, subject, Uh, but there was a great time of fellowship. God continues to grow our weekday ministry. I think close to 80 kids are a part of that now, and uh, so praise praise the Lord for that. So Genesis chapter 27, if you have not been uh, following along at home in your own quiet time uh, with the Lord, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, because uh, we are only hitting the highlights, and, and really we're not even hitting all the highlights. He, I appreciate did a fantastic job last week as we kind of got into the story quickly of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction and uh, Abraham, and then uh, we're going to fast track this morning. Abraham's son Isaac is born, though he and Sarah, his wife, laughed. When God made that promise, God delivered on his promise, and as he shared with us last week, God is a promise keeper. And Isaac came about, and if you look to Genesis chapter 25 quickly, it's, it's basically the line of Ishmael. I'd encourage you to read that. If you're into history and genealogy, that's a great chapter. We're going to fast forward through that chapter this morning, and then you'll find out and discover in 20, chapter 26 that uh, Abram's son Isaac uh, gets married, and he has uh, some twins. Isaac and Rebekah have some twins, Esau and Jacob. Now, Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. Oh, I can't imagine. Can you imagine raising a baby at 60? I could barely imagine it at 28. I was like, what have I done? Well, I need more energy. But at 60, they had, they had twins. And uh, Sarah had passed away. Abraham had remarried. Uh, Jacob and Esau were interesting. Uh, they weren't identical twins by any stretch of the imagination. They were vastly different. Uh, Esau was a hunter outdoorsman, and Jacob uh, was kind of a stay-at-home guy. Isaac loved Esau, uh, but Rebekah was more fond of Jacob. 
And we're going to pick up in chapter 27 where a, a tragic decision is made. In chapter 25, Esau gave away his birthright for food. He comes into camp, he's hungry, his brother's cooking, and he says, hey, give me some of that food. And his brother says, I'll give you some of this food if you give away your birthright. Now, I have had some crossroads cooking. And I'd give away a lot of stuff for some of the crossroads dishes that had been here. But I can't imagine uh, him being so hungry that he gave away his birthright. But that's actually what happens. And then we get into Genesis uh, chapter 27. Uh, I want to talk to you this morning as you look at this chapter about what I would uh, call maybe the results of ungodly thinking. Or do you have a fake ID? Uh, When I went to Gardner-Webb my freshman year, I lived on campus... I knew a few people in my hallway, but there were a few people I didn't get to know. And right across my, uh, from my dorm room, across the hall, were some interesting guys. Uh, they would come in at wee hours of the morning, and I don't know if they left at the wee hours. I came to find out they, they did not. They were sleeping most of the day. But I could hear things happening in there at night. There was a rumbling and noise and things going on, and what I found out, thanks to campus security and eventually the Shelby Police Department, was that those guys were in there making fake IDs. And uh, when they were discovered, they left the door open, and you could see in there, now students don't listen to this part. I'm not giving you any ideas how to do this, all right? But you could see in the dorm room, they had nailed to the wall uh, a blue sheet, which was their background, and they had some sophisticated, at least at that time, which was back in the... Uh, late 80s, uh, some sophisticated equipment to take these pictures and create apparently what was passing for fake IDs. Um, And they were caught. I want to share with you this morning that spiritually speaking, we can all walk around with a fake ID. We can present ourselves as somebody that we're not. uh, And sometimes we do it without any encouragement or any pressure from anybody else we just do that maybe from the pressure of the world maybe from our own lack of self-confidence maybe from for whatever reason and we we operate we meaning you and me I do this too we operate outside of the understanding of our identity being in Jesus and I'll just tell you 100% of the time it doesn't end well when we do that because we begin to operate with ungodly thinking, and we're going to discover that's exactly what happens in this story with uh, Isaac and his two sons. Let's read it, chapter 27, verse 1. It came about when Isaac was old, his eyes were too dim to see. Can anybody relate? Yeah, I can, I can. He called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. And Isaac said, Behold, now I'm old And I don't know the day of my death. Now then, take your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me, and prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebecca was listening. Better translation would be eavesdropping, because that's what she was doing, while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebecca said to her son, Jacob, Hey, I heard your dad talking to your brother. And he's getting ready to give away the birthright. So she says in verse 7, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat it. And he said, I'll bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. So here's what you do, son. She says, 
Listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice kids from there that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father that he may eat so that he may bless you before his death. Verse 11, Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. How am I going to pull this off? How am I going to pull this disguise off? Perhaps my father will feel me and I will be a deceiver in his sight and I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But oh, his mother, she had a plan. She says, verse 13, your curse will be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. Go get them for me. So he went, went out, got the kids with the uh, lambs and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Rebecca took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Wow, talk about a costume. She also gave the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. And then he came to his father and said, My father. And his father said, He said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, verse 19, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Get up, please sit, eat of my game that you may bless me. And Isaac said to his son, how is it you have so quick, have done this so quickly? And he said, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. And Isaac said to Jacob, please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him and he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game and I may bless you. And he brought it to him and he ate. He also drank wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. Verse 27, he came close and he kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him. And I encourage you to read that blessing. We'll pick it up in just a minute. But he blesses his son uh, with the disguise. What is going on here? The fake ID and results of ungodly thinking. I don't know about you, but if you look around in the world right now, there's a lot of ungodly thinking. We don't have time to give you all the things that you see. And I see week after week, day after day, ungodly thinking. We could talk about politics. We could talk about what's happening in the Ukraine, which is a travesty. We could talk about what happens in Greenville. We could talk about what happens in our own homes, in our own spiritual lives. There is a lot of times where we make, you and I, make decisions that are ungodly based on uh, wrong thinking. And we have these twins that were born. Now, if you know the history, and if you go back and read chapter 25, you'll find out that uh, early on, Rebecca was told by the Lord that the son that was going to be honored was the younger son. So she knew that. Yet, for whatever reason, we get to this chapter and we discover that, strangely, Isaac is insisting on giving the blessing to Esau, the one that God did not choose. Uh, We know he despised his birthright. He had married into uh, some pagan, uh, uh, pagan wives. And so it seems to me kind of unusual that Isaac, here he is, plainly rejecting godly thinking, plainly rejecting spiritual wisdom. And his mind is actually only on good food. Thinking about what his son can bring to him. Maybe that was his determining factor. Man, if you can cook and you can bring me some good food. How many men are, have been married? who made that their primary determination about their spouse, that she could cook, and then all of a sudden she cooks great, but there's a lot of other things that come along with the package. 
Choose wisely, young people. Choose wisely. And so that's where we find ourselves. We find Isaac here in this situation. And he, it has come time for him to pass on the blessing, which was according to custom, to pass on the blessing to a son. And instead of, again, choosing to uh, do it God's way, uh, he was going to pass his blessing to Esau. So he comes in. He actually thinks he's dying. Now, in, th- in those days, you didn't wait till somebody died so much to pass on a blessing. We call it a will, last will and testament. In Bible times, you almost did that while you were still alive. How interesting. And so he comes in to be blessed. If you know, again, Bible history, you'll know that, that actually Isaac didn't die the next year. Didn't die the next year. Didn't die the next year. Or the next year. Or the next year. He actually lived for 43 more years. But for some reason, maybe it was his eyesight going. I hope that's not an indicator. He thought the end was coming. And so he brings in who he thinks is uh, Esau to be blessed. A couple of things I noticed from this passage I want to share with you quickly this morning about ungodly thinking or having a fake ID. Here's the first one. We see here in this passage, ungodly thinking demonstrates a lack of trust. Lack of trust. Instead of trusting God to fulfill what he had already promised, and we know God is a promise keeper. Instead of trusting God to do what he had promised, as he did in Genesis chapter 25, we have uh, some people who decide to take it upon themselves to help God out a little bit. And Rebecca, doing what she thought was right uh, in her man-centered or woman-centered wisdom and strength, uh, decides that she's going to help God out. Her good intentions, uh, by the way, did not justify this self-centered approach. So here we are, we find her in the area of saying, I'm going to take care of this. So she calls over her son. And while she's listening, she hears this conversation. And so when Esau goes out into the field to go hunting, she says, Isaac, come here a minute. We're going to help God out. We know that you're supposed to receive the blessing. But your dad's not listening. So while your brother's away, we're going to conjure up a little plan here. And that's exactly what she does. She conjures up a plan demonstrating that she thinks she knows better. I got to be honest with you, church. When I was reading this this week, I really started struggling. And actually, this whole first point, I almost just scrapped off the sermon because I really had to do some introspection. Because what happened here, what she really did is... Something that we see a lot in our world today, we actually see it a little bit even in the church. You say, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm going I'm to tell you. When, when we're willing to abandon the question of whether something is right or wrong, and when our only concern is the outcome or what works, we have slowly drifted into something that is called a pragmatism. Pragmatism. Pragmatism has improved uh, living standards for millions of people in our world because now they enjoy uh, things like home ownership and indoor plumbing and mass production, of course, has achieved these things, but probably achieved them at the expense of quality and craftsmanship. Most of us like uh, going to the big box store because we can get second-rate furniture and some of the furniture that we purchased, if it was actually handcrafted, Like in the old day, it would be a lot more expensive, so it saves us money and we can get it for a fraction of the cost. That is industrial pragmatism. The scary part is it happens in the church as well. 
I remember when I was a student pastor, I think I've shared this story before. I know I've shared it with Heath, I think. We decided that we were going to uh, not rip a gutter off the church. We thought about it, but we went to Lowe's and we got a gutter and we brought it to the church and we had the world's largest banana split and we filled up that gutter with ice cream and uh, chocolate syrup and, you know, pecans and all kinds of stuff and it was the rave of the town, 50 foot long banana split in this gutter and people came out and we shared the gospel, of course, and we had that and we had some people who made decisions. Some of those decisions, I'm not sure if they actually got rooted or not because the majority of those people never showed up again, but we still did it and we did it because what happened was the result was a lot of people were there. And we could say, wow, we had 200 teenagers. I'm thankful, by the way, that's not the heart of our student pastor, our teaching pastor, or the heart of our staff, but it can very easily seep into the way that we do church. Pragmatism is, is this philosophy of operations that causes us to make decisions based on whatever will give positive results. If the results are negative, then we avoid it, but if the results are positive, then that's what we do. Uh, And I'm not, don't confuse pragmatism with being practical. Being practical is like being sensible and logical in your approach to a problem. Pragmatism is is a philosophy, it's a mindset of the way we choose to do things and Pragmatism says that visible results that we can see that are measured by human standards are the yardstick to judge whether things are truth or usefulness, not God's word. The results are disastrous. I'm just telling you, in, 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 the, in the Baptist culture, in the Baptist denomination, in our convention, there are many times where that pragmatism is at work. I uh, have the conversation quite oftenly with pastor friends of mine. Pragmatism is at work when I hear them, when the first question they ask about Crossroads is, how many of you guys have in service on Sunday morning? In their mind, that, that's the end result. How many seats are being filled? I'm not saying that's a bad thing, necessarily. The motive of the heart is the key. Where there is life, there is growth. So there should be numerical growth, but numerical growth alone, if we root everything in what we see by numbers, then we're missing the boat. We're operating in a pragmatic way. And the point is clear. Either the Bible or the results have to be the standard. It can't be one or the other. It has to be be one or the other. It can't be both. And as believers, we have to hold to the primacy of scripture that the results no matter how wild they are can't make up for disobedience what do you say to those prophets of old who preached and preached and preached and preached and nobody got saved you were a failure you did what god told you to do but you were a failure no you'd never say that but yet in our modern day culture that's the way we tend to operate a lot of times with pragmatism and that's exactly what rebecca is doing she's thinking well now wait a minute we want the outcome to be this it doesn't look like this is working god might need a little bit of help let me step in and assist him by the way you may be wondering okay what what is how do we measure results here at crossroads let me tell you real quickly it's in the second part of our name roads Numbers are important. We think about numbers. We have to know numbers so that we can be practical and think about how many spaces we need and parking places and rooms. So I'm not saying we aren't practical. You have to be practical. But the way we measure success 
here at Crossroads is in the second word of our name, roads. We think about, are we reaching out? Are we? Are we putting others first, or is it always about me? Are we accountable to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I have the uh, privilege and opportunity to come up to you and ask you about how you're doing spiritually? By the way, you have that with me. That's accountability. That's growth. Are we uh, making disciples? That's the D. Are disciples being made? S. Are we sending out missionaries? Not necessarily to the foreign countries. Of course, that's important. But are we sending out missionaries to our schools? Young people, you are a missionary. Matter of fact, the largest mission field on the planet is the school campus. I'd love to stand up here and say, look at me. Look how I did it on my school campus. Do not look at me. I was not a great example. I missed an opportunity for people who probably left high school, left college, never knowing who Jesus was. And I missed that opportunity that God had strategically placed me in their life, perhaps to be the light and to share Jesus. And I missed it because I was too focused on other things. I was worried about what they would think about me. You know how many high school people I've seen that went, I went to high school with since I graduated? Maybe three. And yet my biggest concern was what do they think? College, I've maybe seen four or five. Because life happens and we get scattered. So how do we measure things? Do we look at them pragmatically like Rebecca did? Do we look at them with just results? Or do we say, what is God asking me to do? And I'll tell you, that's a challenge. That's a challenge with the staff. That's a challenge with the church leadership to think about how to do that. Because it sneaks in subtly into the church. Let me give you a couple quick examples and we'll move on. Because I was thinking this week, one of the ways that the pragmatism can sneak in is through our worship. You know, we can very easily, and I'm thankful we have a worship pastor who doesn't do this, but we could very easily think on Sunday morning, what are the songs that are going to make everybody happy? What are the lyrics that we need? What are the instruments that need to be up here? And then we start to say, okay, that's what we're going to do. If that's what pleases people, if that's what even, this is where you have to be careful, if that's even what draws people, then that's what we'll do. Here's the scary part about that. The scary part about that philosophy is it has no anchor because you're following what culture does and culture changes. And so then your definition of what worship is changes and you become a slave to that wicked master of pragmatism and you sacrifice biblical theology. I'm not saying you can't change it up. I'm not saying you don't think about how to reach people. I'm not saying you don't think practically. But if the driving force is looking at the end and going, how can we make this happen? Let's back up and create a world so that that happens. That's pragmatism. It doesn't have a place in the church. In many cases, you think about, let's just think about church in general. You have people move to a community, and we've had folks, and if you're new here, we're so glad that you're here. Not sure how you chose Crossroads. And there are a lot of ways to choose where you go to church. I was looking at a survey this past week and seeing what, what was the primary decision uh, people choose church. Sometimes it's because they have a great children's ministry. Sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. Those are not necessarily bad things. But if they become the primary thing, then that's pragmatism. How many people leave a church 
that has great theology and go to another church because, well, they have donuts every Sunday. Or because they have this waterfall in the children's area. I'm being a little bit facetious, but I'm, I'm being pretty much dead serious. It happens all the time. Instead of people making a decision about where they're going to be planted on, is the Word of God the primary focus? You say, well, that won't attract a lot of people, Pastor Jack. You know what? Maybe not. I, tend to argue, I would argue with you that when you, when you talk about and you preach and you teach in our children's ministry and our students' ministry and our small groups, when you teach the truth of the living God, it will attract people. Maybe not by the masses. Then you get into what really is church about, which we don't have time to talk about this one. The whole definition of why do we have church? Are we trying to have church for those that don't know Jesus or is church for those of us who do know Jesus? Oh, you can, you can talk all day. Great question. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. Here's another reason, lastly, why pragmatic reasoning is very dangerous. And it's very deceptive. Because a lot of times... When the Lord is apparently blessing something or working, then we can look at that and go, wow, the Lord's blessing that, so that must be what He wants. Be careful. Did you know the Lord blesses many things that He doesn't endorse? Let that sink in a little bit. Because when I was thinking about that this week, I had to go, what, huh? Is that heresy? The Lord will bless many things. That he does not endorse. We're actually reading about it through the book of Genesis. Let me give you an example. God promised to bless Ishmael, although he was conceived through the compromising wisdom of the flesh. God still chose to bless him. God blessed the children of Israel with water. Even though Moses, in, him, in his impatient attitude, struck the rock instead of speaking to it, God still blessed the people. Think about King Saul. God anointed King Saul with his spirit to lead Israel, even though the people had sinned, saying, oh, we don't want you, God, for a king, so send us a different king. We don't want you, so send us an earthly king. And God said, okay, fine. So we have to be careful. You need further proof, look at your own life. Does God bless me and, and, and do things for me because of who I am, because of my righteousness? No, it's because of the mercy and the grace of Jesus. It's not because of me. But if we're not careful, we, by we, I mean you and I, I'm guilty of this too. I can begin to think, well, God's doing this because I am doing such a fantastic job. No. God's doing it because he's a God of blessing and a God of grace. So it's a foolish thing for us to start to construe when God is working as a confirmation of his endorsement and approval. And say, wow, how in the world do you figure out if God's blessing or not? You look at God's word. 
And the validation of what we do here at Crossroads is not whether necessarily God is blessing it. A lot of times that is an indication. But it's not whether God is blessing it or not. But the validation is, is it in accordance with what the Word of God says we are to be doing? I'm just telling you, that makes decisions very, very hard. I know some of you think that some of the leadership and some of the staff, perhaps over the last couple of years, just kind of flippantly made decisions about where we were going to worship and what time we were going to worship. and how. It, these, none of those decisions were flippantly made. They were made through agonizing prayer and discussion and prayer and discussion and prayer. Did I mention prayer and discussion? Because we could easily do those things and certain th- results start to happen and go, well, well, okay, that must have been the right decision. I'm just telling you, if you base your right decisions on the way you feel, look out. Because sometimes I feel good about my decisions and it was a bomb and sometimes I feel bad about my decisions and that was exactly what God wanted me to do. So be careful. Rebecca here is in this situation of thinking through this pragmatically. Okay, God, I'm going, to help, I'm going to help God along a little bit. And so she decides not only to go against this, but then it gets even worse. She moves in from just totally demonstrating a lack of trust to thinking, okay, now let's add a little bit of deception in here. And so she calls her son over, says, here's what I want you to do. Verse 9, go out there to the flock, go get a couple of choice kids. Prepare them. While you're preparing them, I'm going to get your costume ready. So that's what she does. She moves into uh, deception, depending on deception. When I was, uh, before I came to Crossroads for many years, as some of you know, I got to travel around and uh, lead worship and speak on occasion at youth conferences. And I had a buddy of mine in Gastonia, North Carolina, at a church who said, hey, I want you to go to Gatlinburg with us and lead worship. But what we're going to be talking about that weekend is about uh, who we are in Christ. And so part of what I'm going to plan on teaching on, I want you to, want to, want you to do me a favor. I said, what is that? He said, we will pick you up on the interstate. And I want you to pose as a hitchhiker. So I was like, all right, this is going to be fun. So I did. I had somebody drop me off on uh, 85, just below Gastonia, in a little town called Kings Mountain on the side of the interstate. And I thought, okay, man, I, I, I look too clean. They're not going to really buy into that I'm this just hitchhiker. What can I do? So uh, it had rained the day before, so I throw myself down in the gully, and I wallow in the mud, and I've got mud all over me, and I find an empty... Uh, almost empty beer can, and I pick it up, and I pour that all over me, and I mean, I'm just rank, I'm just whatever, and I, I did have this one sign that was all beat up that said Gatlinburger bus, and I'm standing there on the side of the road, I got my duffel bag and my thumb, and I'm holding the little sign, and just so happens, you know, of all the people that are coming down the interstate, there just happened to be this one church bus going to Gatlinburg. And he pulls over, and it was interesting because a lot of people on the bus, a lot of the adults on the bus, they were just, they were harassing the student pastor. They were like, you do not stop. This is, this is a, he could be a killer. Keep going, keep going. And then half of them were like, you need to pull over and share Jesus. I mean, it was 50-50 debate on the church bus. Well, they pull over. They pick me up. I get on the bus. They say, where are you heading? And I said, well, you saw my sign. I'm going to Gatlinburg. Some of the teenagers said, well, we're going to Gatlinburg too. So like, yeah, I know. And we head down the road, and we have a great journey. Long story short, they were asking me uh, all kinds of questions, and I was 
lying to them all along the way. And I deceived them. I had not shaved in like six or seven days, too, just to kind of make it more real. Long story short, I mean, before it was over, there were two or three of the young people, uh, some of the girls sitting at the back of the bus, and they were sharing Jesus with me, and I was rejecting Jesus in character, and they just started weeping for me. And, and I thought, man, they're the real deal. So we roll into the Gatlinburg downtown, and I say, just let me off right here at the bottom of the hill. So they let me off, and I just kind of say goodbye, and some of them are crying because they think I'm going to die and go to hell. And some of them are like, yay, finally you let the prisoner off the bus. Hallelujah. And so as soon as they let me off the bus and the bus turns, some of you know Gatlinburg, and they head up the hill to the conference center we're going to. Here I am running down the back alleys, and I am just trekking it. I'm trekking it. The youth pastor had already arranged for me to get into my room early. So I get into my room, and while they're checking in, I take a shower and shave, clean up and all that. And the session starts, and there's a kind of a curtain area like this, and I go backstage. And so when he says, and today leading worship is my friend Jack Eason, and I come out on the stage. And some of them are like... <laughs> some of them were happy, and some of them wanted to kill me. But it was deception. It was fun, but it was still deception. This is the kind of deception that's not fun. Preparations are being made by Rebekah, along with Jacob, to deceive Isaac. And the worst part of all this is, if you haven't figured this story out, at least at this part of the story in their history, there's not a lot of trust here in this whole family. I mean, I can't imagine. Maybe you can relate. Everybody behind each other's backs, conniving, trying to work things out. And they they thought apparently there was something magical that was going to happen with this blessing. Only God could actually truly bestow the blessing. And so Jacob works into this thing and buys into his whole mom's plan. And it doesn't just go into deception. It goes into the third thing. It devolves into lies. It devolves into lies. Let's pick it up and go back to verse 18. He goes in to see his dad after she's put this costume on him and the skins, and he's got the food, and he walks in to his father, and his father says, here I am, who are you, son? And Jacob says this, I am Esau, your firstborn. Lie. I have done as you told me. Get up and come eat of my game. Lie. Your mama made that food. You didn't make that food. And bless me. And Isaac questions him again. How'd you do this so Quickly, how'd you get this food so quickly, basically? And he says, because the Lord caused it to happen to me. I read that this week and I thought, wow. Some translations say the Lord gave me success. Got to tell you, a lot of people give the Lord credit for things he doesn't want credit for. We need to be careful attaching God's name to things he didn't say. If you remember when we started this study back in Genesis, that's actually exactly the tactic that the serpent used. Well, did God not say? And sometimes what happens is the reason that we sometimes attach God's name to it, if we're not careful, is we, it's, a, it's really what we're wanting is a personal preference. So we attach, well, that might be what God wants to it to kind of give it some reinforcement. And in actuality, it's just something that we want. It's not really what God wants. And it's using a fake ID, if, if you will. And so... Isaac asked him again, 
After not recognizing the voice and still kind of wondering, he asked him again, verse 24, Are you really my son Esau? And he says, I am. Lies again. Lie, 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 lie. So his dad says, bring to me the game and I will bless you. And so he brings the food to him and his dad blesses him, verses 27 through 29. And just as the blessing is finishing, who walks in? His brother, back from the field. It says this in verse 30, It came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of his father, Esau came in from his hunting. He went and made his savory food. He brought it to his dad. His father said, Let my father rise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And Isaac, his father said, Whoa, 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 whoa. Who are you? He said, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled violently and said, Well, wait a minute. Who, who was this who brought the hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it and I blessed him. There's going to be a fight. They used to say when I was in high school, I'm going to cut you. I'm going to cut. I mean, he comes back to find out his birthright has been stolen. The blessing has already been given. Which leads us into the other thing that happens with ungodly wisdom. Destiny. The destiny is grief. The destination is grief. Isaac trembled. Esau gets angry. So angry, in fact, that we... If we keep reading, we'll find out that in verse 41, Esau started to get a grudge against Jacob because of this blessing. And he says to himself, into verse 41, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then after, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. Rebecca knows this is going to happen, so she sends for her younger son and says, your brother's about to kill you. You might want to get a bus ticket out of town because you're going to be on his list so flee and she sends him to his uncle and we'll find out later it's interesting turnabout is fair play that when he goes to be with his uncle you'll discover in the next couple of chapters that his uncle actually pulls the same kind of trick on him thinking he's going to be with one lady and all of a sudden turnabout watch out so you say, what is this? how does this apply to us? How does this apply to me? How are you making decisions today? Are you using wisdom? Godly wisdom? Or your own thinking? I've discovered something about me in 52 years. I have to be very careful because sometimes I can use my own logic. In wisdom, to navigate a situation. And then check in with God when it's over. Is that what you wanted? It's not good. Or maybe even operate in, in uh, if I could say it this way, old wineskins. Well, God did it this way last time, so he's probably going to do it this way this time. And I don't even need to refer to Scripture or keep up with my quiet time and stay plugged into God because I'll just base it on history. That's a dangerous thing to do because God is about a new thing. How, how are you when it comes to making your decisions? Are you using deception? Are you a pragmatist? 
what is the focus on the results? Is this how we determine our results, or is it what we see? Sometimes they match up when they do. That's a great feeling. Sometimes they don't. If we were to preach God's word this morning and be here to worship and we had five people show up, would we go, wow, we did something wrong? Or was it for the audience of one? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Lord, as I am processing even this scripture this week, I pray that you would examine my heart. I pray you'd examine the heart of these friends in this room. We do want to be practical. We do want to be good stewards of the resources you've given us. But we don't want to help you out in the sense of helping you accomplish something that you can do without us. We want to be about your agenda, in other words, God. Would you help us to do that? It's so easy to pull together our plan of what we want and say, God, would you bless this? At least that's easy for me to do. So, Lord, I confess to you today that I I need you. I need your wisdom. We need your discernment, Lord. When we look at the things that are happening in our world, in our schools in our homes, in the workplace, in other countries. My goodness. Oh, that some of the things that are happening probably would not be happening if there had been someone at the helm seeking you for some godly wisdom. Lord, would you help us to lead out in that as a church in this community? We would be the light for truth. God, we would hold your word high. Lord, I don't know how you want to end the service this morning, but I pray that you would help us to be honest before you today. Church family, I want to give you just a few moments right there where you're seated just to say, Lord, what are you trying to say to me today? Just a minute, I'm going to pray and we're going to have a time to respond. This altar is open if you need to come pray. If you need to make any decision this morning, I'll be here. I'm going to ask... Corey and Heath to come stand with me this morning. If you just want somebody to pray with you or encourage you, that's why we're here today. As a student, as a praise band leads us, I, I just ask Holy Spirit that you would speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning? And if you need to make some decision this morning, we'll be down here at the front welcoming you and ready to receive you today. We hope you've been challenged and inspired from today's message. You can find out more about the message you have heard today by visiting our website, hope at crossroads.org. 
If you live in the upstate South Carolina area and you're looking for a church home, we hope you'll come by and visit sometime. Details about our church and service times can also be found online. In addition, we want to invite you to check out some of the great items at our website that will help you, or you can give as a gift to a friend. Devotionals and other resources are all available at hope at crossroads.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you will tune in again next week.